Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Do you know that Matthew records his own calling? It's not right there in Matthew 5. It's actually in chapter 9. If you'd like to turn over there real quick, we'll, we'll take a few moments to look at this and, and see what Matthew has to say about it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to, and he doesn't say this, but I, maybe Luke does, uh, sinners to repentance. Isn't that interesting? Matthew's writing about himself in that situation. Can you, can you imagine doing that writing uh, as if standing outside that moment and recollecting back. I, I don't know exactly when Matthew was written, but some think probably around A.D. 70. So we're talking about maybe 40 years after these events that Matthew records this, if that's the case. then uh, He's thinking back on this and the significance of it. What was Matthew's profession before joining Christ as a disciple? Tax collector, right? Wow tax collector. Um, uh, he had tax collector friends and sinner friends, apparently, according to this. And uh, do you know that Matthew mentions tax collectors more than any other biblical author? So <laughs> if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Uh, probably because he was one. Luke calls him something else in Luke's gospel. What does Luke call Matthew? What's, what's his other name? Anybody know? Matthew has another name, probably his Jewish name. Levi. Levi. And so he's known as Matthew, probably his Greek name. And if he is a tax collector, it's, there's some discussion about that. Is he a, does he collect the temple tax or does he collect the, um, the tax for the Romans? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, if he is, his name's Levi, he's probably a Levite. Does that make sense? If your name's Levi, you're probably going to be a Levite. <laughs> so he's uh, a Levite. They tended to keep the name in the family like that. And so there's a possibility that one of his responsibilities is collecting the temple tax. That would have brought him just being a tax collector. Probably in our day would be a little bit like, only even more notorious, like being a used car salesman with a cowboy hat and a southern accent. Okay, you know what I mean? That it just there's something shady about it. You might be honest, but the profession kind of has a negative connotation to it. Okay? And so when you think about that, that's probably that's probably what's true here of Matthew that that he's a tax collector and he's despised and the fact that it mentions he's got friends that are tax collectors and sinners, that suggests to me that he wasn't just collecting for the temple tax, which was legitimately ordained in the Old Testament, and there would have been people that would have been responsible for that. But my understanding is that you pay that when you go to the temple. So the need for collectors, I don't know. But uh, this suggests that maybe he does work for the Romans, which would have put him in a despised situation among his countrymen. People would have looked down upon that. Like there was a whole segment of people that thought that we shouldn't be paying any taxes to Caesar. We should be fighting Caesar. And so they thought uh, to trick Jesus. Some people thought to trick Jesus at one time. Matthew records this event. 
uh, with a coin asking him, should we pay tax to Caesar or not? Bring me a coin whose image is on the coin, right? And uh, they say Caesar, and Jesus says, well, give that to Caesar and give yourselves to God, essentially. So Matthew, he records a lot about tax collectors, but he also records probably more than any other gospel writer, at least, and maybe more than anyone else. Paul might be the exception to this. I can't remember the total figure on this, but he records a lot about mercy. Okay, so you'll see, probably Paul, you'd see a lot more about grace uh, in his writings, but but Matthew records a lot about mercy. And even here in his own story, it may be that Matthew was not welcomed by many people because of what work he did. Do you remember what other disciples Jesus had? What are some of the other disciples? Let's, let's go through them and see if we can pick out one that might have a problem with Matthew being a disciple. Simon the Zealot. Okay, He's like not fond of the idea of people paying taxes. If, if he goes with traditional zealot uh, ethics or values, he would not be happy with that. But it's funny how Jesus brought people of different stripe into the into the um, into the fold and as part of his disciple team, uh, maybe it'd be more like uh, in our day it'd be even more extreme than like Democrat and Republican, and uh, we might think, can somebody in the opposing political party be Christian? Sure, they can. But uh, here, here is the question: uh, Can Matthew receive this kind of mercy? And he has that. That issue, it may mean that uh, Matthew was not welcomed by many people because of the work he did, because he was a tax collector. And the tax man was even more despised in Jesus' day because they were often thought to be dishonest. You could not only collect taxes, but you could put a little on top for yourself. And nobody liked paying taxes anyway, but when, uh, when it's a government that the people didn't want, that's even worse. And when you know that there are a lot of tax people that are dishonest, then that's even worse than that. And so tax collectors were used in the same sentence with pagans, prostitutes, and sinners in the Bible. And you can look at it if you want to go through your concordance and look at it. You look up tax collectors or just tax, you'll find in similar sentences those words, um, pagans, prostitutes, and, and sinners. So the Pharisees uh, come into this situation. I don't know exactly how all this is set up if Matthew's throwing a party at his house, and they're sitting outside in the uh, the cool evening, or how this all exactly comes about, but Pharisees somehow come on the scene, and when they do, they ask the disciples why Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Why is Jesus doing that? You see, to eat with somebody was considered acceptance of their behavior. Uh, you'll find that later in the New Testament when it talks about those who are sexually immoral, don't even eat with them. Because in that culture, that was considered acceptance of the behavior. And so here to look at Jesus eating with these tax collectors and sinners, it was, it was as if the Pharisees were thinking in their mind, he's condoning that kind of behavior. So they look at him that way. And there seems to be, in the mind of the Pharisee, no room for repentance or forgiveness. No room for real change. Like you have to be born righteous and live righteous your whole life. Like you can't make a change somewhere and then forget about the past because we don't have verses at this point. Like if anyone's in new Christ, they're, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. That hasn't been written yet. People don't understand the full newness of life. It's you bring your baggage with you. So even people who are converted to Christ, at times people are still reflecting back to what happened years ago with them. And uh, certainly we understand that in Christ, that's not God's view of them, that we're forgiven and we're made as new. And in uh, Christ, I was just reading this this morning, it says in 2 Corinthians, I can't remember the chapter and verse, but I think it's chapter 4 where it says... uh, that now that we're in Christ, we don't regard people according to the flesh like we once did. In other words, we don't look at things through human standards the way that we once did. We, we've changed our way of evaluating people. You know, there's this, this worldly way of looking at people and evaluating them. 
And we don't do that as Christians anymore. We see everybody as having value because they're made in the image of God. Are you with me? There's a, a new way of looking at life and people in Christ. So I think there's there's some of this in the Pharisee mindset, like you can't ever change. You can't ever be different. Like if those people are all there coming to become followers of Christ and truly repenting of their sins, the Pharisees can't see it. They don't see that as a possibility. All they see is these people are sinful. What is Jesus doing with them? And so uh, they asked the question to the disciples, kind of cowardly, I think. They didn't ask Jesus, although they do in other situations. But they asked the disciples, and Jesus responds to them. It's like he overhears them. He says, I got something to say about that. And he responds to them, even though they didn't ask him the question. And he shows them that he was there to redeem the sinful Rather than getting sick, he was going to heal them. Look at what it says. This is where we're here now in uh, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy. That's uh, Matthew nine twelve. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So I'd like you to notice something because sometimes uh, because we come from a holiness movement, we've taken a certain view about being around people that I think has is unhealthy, okay? There is a sense in which we, if we're vulnerable spiritually, we may need to separate ourselves. Are you with me on that? Like, we don't want to continue to be uh, among people that are going to influence us in a negative way. But the ideal is not that. The ideal is that wherever we go, we're the influencers. Are you with me? So that when we get around people, they're the ones who ought to be uncomfortable, not us, because we're walking with God. Now, I'm not suggesting we be foolish and throw ourselves into a situation where we're going to be tempted. Nothing like that. But I'm saying that that in this condition, Jesus was not concerned about spiritual cooties. Are you with me? Because there's that mindset that goes around like, I can't go out into the world and because they might be playing a secular song at the grocery store and I'll get contaminated. Are you with me? Okay. And I want to suggest to you that with the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, we're not quite that vulnerable. That <laughs> it's the world that ought to be on guard. You know what I mean? If, if we're living out the ideal, uh, we're often not. But Jesus going to that situation was not going to be contaminated by the sinful people. What was going to happen is either they were going to change or they were going to leave. Because he was on fire for God. So he wasn't worried about getting sick. He was bringing health to them. Okay, so the second thing that he kind of says in this response, he challenges them through the Old, Old Testament teaching from Hosea 6.6. 6. Now, I know it doesn't say right there in, the, uh, in Matthew 9, Hosea 6.6, 6, but if you, you see, there might be a little cross-reference number there. And it'll take you to the margin where it'll say Hosea 6.6, 6, probably. Does your Bible say that? Okay. And uh, that is this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus says to them, you guys, why don't you go think on this? <laughs> I, I don't know if this was his tone, but this is almost like when you're a kid and you get in trouble and your mom puts you in the corner, says, think about this. Think about why that was wrong and what you should have done. Okay, so I kind of get that impression here. I don't, I don't know if it's exactly like that, but he's telling them, you need to, you guys, for all your Old Testament knowledge, you need to think about this a little more because you've missed something. And so he, ta- he challenges them to think about that. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But the next thing he does is he states his mission, which is to call sinners to repentance. He's not there to congratulate the righteous. Are you with me? Even though none of them were righteous. Not in their, they're not righteous in their own standing. Nobody's righteous in their own standing. We're only righteous through Christ. And so, um, you know, I think it's Paul who echoes Jeremiah. Our righteousness is this filthy rag. So he's not there to congratulate people on their own 
uh, legalistic righteousness. He's there to heal sinners. And in fact, if the Pharisees will repent, which they wouldn't because they're too proud, but if they would repent, then he would bring them into the fold and forgive them of their sins. But that's beyond the scope of what happens here. Notice uh, Hosea 6.6 6 there. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So this, this is a this and not that statement. Okay, This, not that. I desire this, not that. Okay, I, I wanted to point this out because there's a lot of things like this in the Bible, and sometimes when we're, we're thinking about it through our Western mindset, we're thinking in uh, these two things are opposites of each other. And what Jesus is doing is he's employing a re- rhetorical uh, device that is putting two things in comparison, and it's saying that this is the more important one. Okay. Now, it doesn't sound like that. What he, it sounds like he's saying is forget about sacrifice altogether and only show mercy. But he's not doing that. This is a Jewish idiom that's saying, look, this is more important than that. Consider this. Jesus says that in comparison to your love for me, you ought to hate parents and family and land and all of that. Does God really want us to hate? No. It's a rhetorical device that's saying this is the more important one by showing two extremes. And so that's what he's doing here. He's saying the more important thing is you guys are all wrapped up in sacrifice, and they should have been because he hadn't died yet. But the more important thing is that they ought to understand mercy is more important than sacrifice. D.A. Carson in his commentary says, this is a shock device that's used to make people think about the incompatibility of offering sacrifice on the one hand while mercilessly nurturing enmity on the other, bitterness, animosity on the other hand. Mercy is more important than sacrifice. Okay, so another one of these from the Old Testament to obey is better than sacrifice. Sometimes they use the this, not that kind of um, device, and other times they use this rather than that. Sometimes in our English translations, we jump to that, and we communicate it the, the way that we would understand it. Okay, So here what Jesus is saying is that they should be re- rejoicing that sinners are turning to God. Instead, they're, concern- they're consumed with their own, I'm, I'm holy and righteous, and you're not, and how dare you sit and eat with them. And they had no, they had no room in their understanding for somebody to be really turning to God out of that old lifestyle. You understand what I mean? We're holy, you're not, there's no hope for you. Jesus, what are you doing eating with those who are lost? Okay, That's the kind of thinking that the Pharisees were perpetuating here. They were wrapped up in their own supposed holiness while they were willing to let others be doomed. So we all know uh, what it's like than to get something we don't deserve. Probably we know what it's like to feel that we're on the outside or that somebody is looking down upon us. I think we probably all experience that where people look down upon us for one reason or another. And we've been excluded from the crowd. We've been in the outs. And especially if you're a Christian, you know that you've, there are times that you've been undeserving of a kindness that's been shown to you. As a Christian, that's true of all of us, right? We've been given a kindness that we didn't deserve. And if that's the case, then we, we know what something of what mercy is about. We've all been recipients of God's mercy. We, we received something. We've been chosen even though we didn't deserve to be. Even though who we are in ourselves, who we are in our shame, who we are in our sins, shouldn't put us in that kind of situation. God chose us anyway. And what he did in doing that is he showed us Mercy. Let's talk about this. This is. Let's go back to Matthew five and verses uh, verse seven. That's the only verse we'll be in. You can you can just keep an eye on that as we we work through this. Uh, let's talk about mercy here. Mercy, and I'm just gonna write this up here for us so we can take a look. Mercy. Mercy in the Old Testament. The thing that I found interesting is that. It's uh, usually a verbal thing. What, is, what does that mean when we talk about 
if we we say something as a verb, what does that mean? It's an action, right? Okay. So this is what I found in the Old Testament. Most time, uh, merciful is not put in the uh, the adjective where it's describing God. Usually, it's put in the verbal form of something that God is doing. So he's showing mercy. So mercy is connected with action. And I think that's really important, that, that God is merciful, and we, we, we understand that that's, that's true of him, that's a describer of God, but, but most of the time what we're seeing in Scripture is mercy in action, that it's God doing something or someone else doing something for somebody. And I think that's really important, is that mercy acts. It, it suggests mercy is active and that the merciful are those who are actively merciful, and not just merciful in their disposition. That's part of it, but it's not the only thing. The specific notion of mercy is compassion to one in need or helpless distress or in debt without claim to favorable treatment. Okay, so let's break that down a moment here. Four parts. Number one is when we talk about mercy... We're first of all talking about a heart of compassion, okay? There's a, there's a heart that it starts with. Think about Jesus, and you look at the words that are translated with mercy, and one of them uh, has to do with the guts, okay? And maybe even a little lower than that. Uh, intestines, you know? <laughs> bowels, bowels of mercy. Have you ever read that in the King James? Bowels of mercy. Well, what's that mean? Well, in uh, Greek thinking... The bowels were the seat of the emotion. And in our culture, we think of it as the heart. Okay, In other places, it's a different thing. Some people have kidneys for their seat of emotions in their culture. And so when we talk about the heart, you really understand that this organ right here doesn't produce our emotions. Right? It's, it's a muscle. Where our emotions are produced is probably some, somewhere in our soul, and somewhere in the mind, which the mind is not exactly equivalent to the brain. Okay. That's, that's important to keep in mind, too, that there's, there's something even scientists don't understand about the connection between the physical and the soulish or the spiritual. But there's, there's something of a, a disposition in this. So when we talk about mercy, I think the first thing that we need to understand is that there needs to be some kind of heart of compassion or some kind of an internal disposition towards other people. It starts there. Okay? And I think this especially happens when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, that He pours out His love in our hearts. Right? So we can love because the Spirit of God is living within us. And so this is talking about a heart of compassion. The second thing that it relates to is giving active help. We often will define mercy as not getting what we deserve, okay? That's a very simple definition. Sometimes you'll read in the Psalms uh, of some pitiful condition of Israel, and they're crying out, God, be merciful to us. They're not saying, "For always forgive us of our sins. Sometimes they're saying, look upon our dreadful condition and bring relief from that. It might be that they need water. God, be merciful to us by sending water. It's not necessarily exactly connected with sin and forgiveness, always. Sometimes it is, but not always, okay? And so when they're crying out for mercy, they're crying out for God's active help. So the first thing is it's a dispositional attitude that uh, whoever is being merciful has. The second thing it is is it gives active help, okay? The third thing that it is is it's for a person or people who are genuinely in need. You can't practice mercy without other people. This is why Christianity doesn't work as hermits. We can't go and like lock ourselves into a place and go, I'm going to be a really good Christian all by myself. How do you know? You can't practice love all by yourself. You can practice love towards God. But what about love towards others? Now, there are situations in which people are stranded and they get isolated, and they ha- it's between them and God. I understand that. But I don't think it's God's will for us to be alone. I think this is where spirituality grows. It's when we're with other people. Okay? And so mercy is one of those virtues 
that we can only express relationally. With me? Okay, and then, so it's towards a person who's genuinely need. First, uh, a disposition of the heart, and then it gives active help, and it's for someone. It's relational. And then the fourth thing is, it's regardless of any claim on the part of the other person for favorable treatment. Listen, what that means is whether they deserve it or not. Are you with me? So there, there's mercy. Like, I see your pitiful condition. God says to us, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to do it anyway because we have a merciful God. It's despite our condition. It's despite our deservedness. And there are times that God will move upon our heart to reach out to a situation where somebody exactly doesn't deserve it. And we need to do it anyway. Because it's the merciful thing to do. It wants to help because it sees a genuine need. Now, this is not the same thing as bleeding heart syndrome where we give to like some kind of empty situation where somebody's genuinely not in need but is asking. Are you with me? There's a difference. There's a difference there. And I I don't want to take time to explore all that because we can always get into some kind of pigeonhole with that. But I do want to say this, talking about genuine needs and taking care of that or helping somebody, having the disposition to do that. So this, this beatitude that we just read about, the blessed are the merciful, uh, this is a this is in contradiction to the traditional Pharisee theology, which would say, "Happy are those who are righteous, or blessed are those who are righteous, for God will be merciful to them. God will be merciful to them." They would have thought that the Pharisees would have. But Matthew reports Jesus saying that the person who shows mercy is the one who really understands that God's been merciful to them. Uh, Lo and Nida in their dictionary says, mercy is to be favorably disposed. That's that disposition with the implication of overcoming obstacles that are unfavorable to a relationship. So some kind of obstacle may stand in the way, but that person's in need. And so we're going to be favorably disposed towards them and help them out, show mercy to them. Mercy, uh, one guy says, does not uh, consider itself, concern itself with strict calculations of desserts. It allows people to make a fresh start and often involves forgiveness and the, the release of others from their indebtedness. Mercy. So th- this is what mercy is about. There's two aspects of it that I think are important, is that it's, it's meeting somebody's need in terms of having pity for them. And then the other is that it often overcomes an obstacle. Remember, internal, it's active, it's relational, and it doesn't let obstacles stand in the way. That's mercy. So when Jesus says this, he's describing what the kingdom subject ought to look like. I don't think he's giving us a law here. I think he's setting up a model of what the kingdom person looks like. Okay, that's a, that's a little bit different. It's like he's inspiring us that we ought to be merciful in light of what God has done for us. What does what does merciful mean? We've talked about mercy. What does merciful mean? Uh, to be one uh, one who is merciful, the merciful, if you want to say it that way, the merciful person um, means that this is a kind of person who is bent on showing mercy, not those who engage in occasional merciful acts. Okay, that's different. Like. If you had a list of things you need to do every day to please God, that's a, for one, that's a really sad way to live the Christian life. But if you had a list and you're like, I got to do an act of mercy today, okay? That's not what this is talking about, okay? This is talking about having that kind of disposition that shows acts of mercy because of who you are in God, Right? So you will show acts of mercy based upon who you are in God as as a person of merciful habits, not the occasional merciful impulse, like I should really do something kind for that person, but 
But mercy is a present participle here, emphasizing that this is continuous nature of coming to the need, uh, coming to the aid of somebody in need. A continual thing, not just occasionally. And when times are not good, Jesus is talking about this when times are not good and tax collectors are collecting a lot more than they should and people are living uh, a little bit above the poverty line and there's not a lot of room in the budget for helping other people. You know, times are hard. Like, we could justify it. Like, I would help, but it's a recession. Can't do it. Well, Jesus is saying this in a time when it would be like that. After all, you know, a lot of people say there's only so much pie to go around. And what happens in those kinds of situations is that the circle of kindness tends to narrow to those we care most about. Like, we'll be really kind, but we'll do it to people we really care about because we don't have enough to give to people who are outside of that. Like, you know, our family. Remember what Jesus said, that one really troubling passage for us? <laughs> if you're kind to those who are kind to you, what reward do you have? Go be kind to somebody that can't pay you back. That's troubling because we like to be kind to people who are going to show kindness back or be grateful or whatever. It's not always like that. God wants us to be merciful in times like that. When it's the hardest, the the perseverance of God's people will be vindicated. Well, if we're talking about those who are merciful, I'd say that those who are merciful, they share the heart of God because he's a merciful God. Okay, So when you think about what creates the characteristic of mercy, God is the greatest mercy giver of all of them. And when you're a merciful person, we're sharing in God's character. Second thing is that the merciful, they know their own unworthiness. This is the point of some of the examples that Jesus gave in Scripture when he talks about, he gave the example of the man who was forgiven a great debt, and then he went and did a shakedown on somebody who owed him way less. Remember that? And uh, and he said that the master found him and like throws him up against the wall. I, I'm putting a little bit of a spin on this, but throws him up against the wall and says, how dare you? I showed mercy to you. Now you're going to have, I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison. You're going to, you're going to pay back the last penny of it because you didn't know how to show mercy to others. There wasn't the connect between receiving and giving to others about realizing the, the, uh, greatness of their own debt while still holding some pe- somebody to a very lesser debt. Sometimes we do that with unforgiveness, don't we? You can find that, by the way, in uh, Matthew 18, 21 through 35, that story. Well, those who need to be merciful may be the victims of others, right? Like sometimes when we need to be merciful, um, Somebody else has gotten themselves in a situation, and maybe they've even done it in a way that has injured us. And now they're asking for our help. What do we do in that situation? Are we, are we now the victims? Um, I would encourage you as a Christian never to see yourself as a victim, ever. That we're not victims, we're victors in Christ. That doesn't mean we don't go through stuff and that things aren't hard, but remember what Paul says, uh, uh, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumphal procession in Christ and helps us to spread everywhere the fragrance of him. Like, Paul is not a victim. He sees Christ as the victor, and he's in his victory parade, his triumph. Well, we're not victims when we are following Christ. There's only, as we said, there's um, there's stuff that we, we go through, uh, but... When we can look with compassion upon the offender, it shows how deeply we've understood our forgiveness and that we could show forgiveness to others. Of all people, we would think that the one in the position to to show mercy might be pitied, but this is really the strong position. This is the blessed position because uh, to an extent, there's power over that circumstance. 
You know, if you can forgive, if you can not let the offenses of others bring you down, you show power over that circumstance. Well, the next part of this is they will be shown mercy. They will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. By whom? And when? What's by God? Okay. Good. Well, some people think that they're going to be shown mercy to the people they've shown mercy to. Is that always the case? <laughs> Often it's not. This is, I think, another example of the divine passive where it says they will be shown mercy as a passive, but it doesn't say the who. And that's a, another, uh, another Hebrew device of bringing God into the picture without saying his name. They will be shown mercy. Well, by whom? By God. It's the divine passive. He's there in it, but they don't mention his name. He's the one that's going to show the mercy. And then um, the question is then, does this mean that our mercy is the causal grounds of God's mercy? So we show mercy, and then we will be shown mercy. Is that how it is? No, it's not. This is a response, and and certainly what uh, he's saying here is that you're blessed, you will be shown mercy because you're following in the example of the God who shows mercy. But the, the previous thing is that God is the one who has saved us and brought us into that place where we can be merciful people to begin with. More simply, uh, you know, well, the Reformers said, I wanted to bring this up. The Reformers would say, and the Puritans used to summarize it like this, that something like this, they would have called it a law. I don't call it a law, but they call it a law. The law sends us to Christ to be justified, and then Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. I I don't know, because I don't think this is a law. Um, I see what they're saying. They're saying it would be a similar thing to... Uh, the law was the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so you see this demand for mercy. You realize you can't do that in your own power. And so it sends you to Christ to get the power to do it. And then Christ says, well, now that you've get, got the power to do it, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. There, there may be a place for that, but I don't think that's here. It seems to me this all starts with a heart toward God that produces mercy as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and in obedience to the Scripture, a kind of life which God can bless. The the blessed reassurance in this verse is that it's okay to go on and be merciful because God's been merciful to you and will be merciful to you beyond this moment. Remember, I think it's a call to remember who it is that we serve. Or maybe more simply, it's showing the outworking of the Christian life lived under the reign of God and that He will, in the end, be merciful to you, not only now, but, but later on. And so be blessed. Don't worry about having to show mercy to others. Do it because he'll be merciful to you. When's mercy to be shown? When will we receive mercy? If uh, we're merciful and we're, we've already set the premise that we're not earning our salvation by being merciful. Okay, When is mercy shown? When does God show us mercy? All, all the time. Yesterday, the day that he died on the cross, the day when he conceived salvation's plan, the day when we came to know him as Savior, yesterday, today, tomorrow, in the eschaton, which is the future, we will receive mercy from him. And so with that kind of thing to look forward to, we ought to show mercy. It's not only in this life, but in the life to come. Matthew chapter 6 talks about it, verse 14 and 15. If you give other people their sins against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive other people their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. I think, once again, this comes back to the same kind of thing that the one who has been forgiven, who is living in God, extends that same grace to others when we really understand what's happened to us. Okay, So this isn't like you're buying your salvation or you're buying your forgiveness by forgiving other people. It's saying the one who truly understands forgiveness, the one who truly understands 
mercy will be merciful to other people. James 2.13 echoes something similar. And uh, Jude 21, you only have to say the verse in Jude because there's only one chapter. Jude 21, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So there the challenge is, stay close, stay connected. He will bring mercy with him. That's talking about the future. Okay, so God will be merciful. Though I don't think... uh, I don't think these are intended to be law. I think they they show the will of God for God's people. He wants us to be merciful people. Uh, for one thing, he desires us to be like him, and he's merciful. Do you agree with that? Has God been merciful to you? Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 36 says, Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. And in doing so, we're called to be distinct I don't think we um, we have to get over the gap the same way the early Gentile converts did. Do you know in um, in Roman times, one of the things that they used to do if they didn't want a baby is they would just throw it outside. And they called it exposure. They called it exposure. And so if you, for example, had a girl baby, which you didn't want because you wanted a boy, you would just throw it out and... Let it die of exposure. Uh, the really interesting thing is that Christians, this is an example of mercy. Christians would go around and gather up babies and take them home and raise them, adopt them, bring them into the family and care for them. That's where our orphanages first started. Was somebody was out there gathering up babies. But my point in saying that is that mercy was not a common trait in the Roman world. It wasn't. This is a a God trait. So what it did is anybody who's a follower of Christ, it would set them in distinction. In today's world, sometimes people mock kindness. If you show extra kindness or you show too much concern, it looks weird to people. They wonder, what are your motives? Why are you doing this? (laughs) We go hand loaves of bread out at Thanksgiving, and I know people wonder about that. They, they wonder less now because they've eaten a lot of our delicious bread. But in the early days, they used to wonder, what is this about? Like, what do you guys got going on here? Nobody does something for nothing. Well, we want to be distinct. In fact, as Christians, we're called to be distinct. And these characteristics are those, are those uh, of those who live within the kingdom. We can't, we can't take our cues from the world. When it comes to living, we take our cues from God, and he's a merciful God. R.T. France, in uh, his book, I Came to Set the Earth on Fire, he said, that's what disciples are for, is to be noticed, because we're distinct. If you feel that we're in a merciless world, be merciful, because that's what God's like. We want to think about uh, what people deserve, well, we don't, I'm thankful I don't get what I deserve. I get something that I didn't deserve. How about you? <laughs> we, aren't you glad you're not getting what you deserve? There's a, there's a few more scriptures on this. Um, if you'd like to read them, I'll just mention them real quick. And if you don't catch them, go back and watch the video, Romans 12.8. If your gift is to encourage, give encouragement. If it's giving then give generously. It's to lead. Do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, that doesn't mean that there's only certain people in the body of Christ that should show mercy. That's talking about people with a special inclination towards a special kind of showing of mercy. Okay, And then uh, Matthew 9.13, which we talked about, Matthew 12.7, he tells the religious leaders, Jesus does again, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, if you knew that, you would not have condemned the innocent. And then in Matthew uh, eighteen thirty three, it's the example that we we talked about from the the steward or the servant. And then Matthew twenty three twenty three, what do you teachers of the law and Pharisees? You hypocrite! You give a tenth of your spice, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law: justice, mercy 
faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. There's an example. Remember how he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Here, he's saying it in a different way. You should have, you should have done your tithing, but you should have considered the weightier matters, which are the other things, which includes mercy. Be merciful for your heavenly Father is merciful, Luke 6, uh, 36. Luke 10, 36 and 37, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell among, uh, fell among the robbers? The expert of the law replied this, talking about the good Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go do likewise. So he concludes the story of the good Samaritan with a question, which is, who was the neighbor? the one who showed mercy. Romans one thirty one talks about the fall away from God, and it says they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. That's a condition of fallenness. That's not how we're created to be. You understand we're created to be. If we, we had never fallen, if we were in God's, God's image as Adam was in God's image before the fall, not marred by sin, mercy would be natural to us. It's not natural to us. We need the life of God to come and to bring that back into our character. James three seventeen. the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, imparting, excuse me, impartial and sincere in Jude 20 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Can we pause here for just a moment and tell you something that really irks me? Um, when I was growing up, uh, there were a few people around that were part of this extreme um, health and wealth gospel. And uh, one of the things that often happened is that with this expectation that we should be full of faith, there was an unkindness that went with it. And so if you ever got sick, then on top of that, not only were you sick, but you, ha- you lacked faith. And why are you sick? You lack faith. And there was an unkindness that went with that. Do you hear what this says in Jude? It says, be merciful to those who doubt. So that means if there are people who are doubting, and maybe they're, they're not sick because they're doubting, that may, those be maybe two different things, but they've ignored the Scripture that says be merciful to those who doubt. If they're convinced they're doubting, don't beat people up over that. Help them out. Be gentle. You see what I'm saying? All right. Well... That's all I've got regarding mercy tonight. I did want to say a couple things regarding um, goodness and happiness. And I'm going to summarize because we're, we're short on time. But last week we talked a little bit about um, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I was thinking this week a little bit about that and um, about a desire for goodness. And... Um, I've been reading the, these different books on uh, the self and about happiness. I'm, I'm getting ready to preach a sermon. I've been preparing it for about four or five months now, but um, about selfishness. And one of the problems that we have in the United States is that we think happiness is the chief goal in life. And do you know that it's not? Do you have a right to be happy? And we it says it, right? Is it the is it the preamble to our constitution? The the pursuit life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Is that guaranteed by God? To be happy? What's God care about more? Our happiness or our goodness? Our happiness or our character? Okay, good. Holiness? Yeah. They see happiness as a fruit of the Spirit? No, you don't. You see goodness. Here's the other thing is that oftentimes our goals are short-sighted. Do you know they did an interview? There's a certain talk show host that and I have it in my notes here, but interviewed, I think, like 1,200 people. And they asked them this question. Um, do you think, what do you think your parents wanted most for you in life? 
And they gave him some options, success, wealth, friendship, goodness, happiness. Do you know what people said? Over 70% of them said their parents wanted them to be happy more than anything else. They didn't care whether they were going to die and go to hell. They cared that they were happy. Do you know you can be happy on your way to hell? And I, I just wanted to bring this up because I think there are times when God takes us through seasons where he's developing our character and he disciplines us. Um, Hebrews 12 talks about that, that no discipline is pleasant while it's happening, but he disciplines us for our good. And if you're a parent, you understand this, that you make your child temporarily unhappy for their for their enduring happiness in time. Because God does care about our happiness, but he's talking about eternal happiness, not temporal happiness that's based on happenstance or what's going to happen. And so I wanted to challenge us with this thought that it's not that happiness is not the primary pursuit in life. Um, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, they believe that. The Dalai Lama, I think, said that happiness is, ought to be the, the chief pursuit in life. It's, the, it's true of Epicurean philosophy and hedonism. Happiness, pleasure, that's the chief goal in life. But not for, not for Christianity, not for Christ. It's goodness. God wants to make us creatures fit for heaven. Now, he saved us, and he's qualified us to stand in his righteousness by his sacrifice. But then he starts to work on our character to make us into people that match that righteousness. That's what God has for us. He wants to make us good. And so um, he's working on us toward that end. I wanted to mention that. There was more to that, but we're out of time. All right, why don't we stand? Thanks for your attention tonight. Father, thank you, Lord, that you've shown us so much mercy, more than we deserve. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you help us to be merciful. You said, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be recipients of mercy. And we thank you that you've already extended that mercy ahead of time to us in the cross of Christ by taking upon yourself our sin and the punishment for our sin so that we could live in you. And I pray, Lord, that as we respond to that, as we read in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, that we're to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. And that includes mercy that we show. I pray, Lord, you help us to do that, to see the need, to look past the deservedness, and to see the need, and to give it, because that's our disposition, that's our action, that's who we are uh, as part of our character and not just in incremental moments. And I pray you help it to be that kind of thing that would be to another person as a gift to you, Lord. Thank you for uh, the challenge tonight. I pray you help us to sink in and to make a difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.